Pardon my mug. The voice is a little weak, so I'll, I'll maybe need that a little bit. But we have a, a cross sticker and then a Texas sticker, which I'm told is God's country, so we're good. So we'll be in Mark chapter 12 this morning, this afternoon. And uh, if you were here about two months ago, I preached the first half of this command, and so we're back to preach the second half of what Jesus says here. And it ties in very, very wonderfully to what Richard read for us, and we'll come to, to that portion later. But we're in Mark chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 28. I'll read all the way through verse 34, and we'll, again, be reminded of this whole passage, and then we'll focus on the second commandment that Jesus gives here as he discusses the two great commandments. So Mark 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and, and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, for you have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. I generally uh, forget the sermon that occurred last week. So um, since the passage, this passage was preached two months ago, I don't expect us to remember all of the, the details and the things that we discussed then. So I want to do a little bit of review, some refreshers as we go through, just to give us some highlights as we lead into the second great command. But again, this is a, a passage set in a context where Jesus is getting a series of questions from the Sanhedrin, the first about paying taxes to Caesar, the second about the resurrection, the th- and this third one, the last one, about the most important commandments. And, and if you remember, this was a popular question that was debated among the teachers. Um, with so many commands in the Old Testament, they often tried to figure out which ones were the, the heavy ones, the, the more important ones, not that you, you could break the lighter ones, but which ones carried more weight, more significance, uh, kind of a, a summary of the Old Testament. And some rabbis came up with other summary commands from the Old Testament, uh, but Jesus comes up with a unique one here, and it is uh, obviously the best one because he is God summarizing the, the law of the Old Testament. And again, he goes beyond the scribe's question, right? The scribe asked for the great commandment, and Jesus gives him the first greatest commandment, and then the second. Uh, The first came from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and the second, which we're going to discuss in detail here today, came from Leviticus 19 verse 18, where it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so that's the the context. So we'll we'll do a little bit more uh, review work, and then we'll actually go into the second command and work through that bit by bit, um, and then then finish out with a series of other verses from the Word of God telling us what it looks like in our context here in church, what it looks like in our context in the world to love our neighbor. And so hopefully we'll 
Uh, be blessed by the word of God this morning. Again, Jesus' answer starts with the Lord. Right? He says the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I mentioned this last time we covered this, but I want to mention it again because it is that important. When, when the Bible calls us to hear, right, it is telling us that we are needing to conform our thoughts, our feelings, our understanding to the Word of God. Right? We are never to reverse that order. We are never to conform the Word of God to us. It is, is not here to suit our desires. We can't change it so it makes us feel better, but rather we are to be changed by the Word of God. Our culture talks about speaking your truth. Well, your truth is useless. God's Word alone is truth, and therefore it's the only truth that matters. Right? You can have an opinion. You can debate somebody about something that may not matter that much, but when it comes to the Word of God, right, we ought not to have a debate. We ought to come to it and submit to it because this is the truth. Right? And in, in the face of the truth, my thoughts on truth are meaningless and pointless. And it's a comfort. Right? It's a comfort to come to the Word of God and know it is the truth. Right? I want to stand on something solid. I don't want to stand on the ever-changing truth of the culture. The Lord is one. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? This is the foundation of all truth, right? the, the source, the truest guide. Right? God gave us his word. He is the source of truth. That's why the Bible is the truth, because it came from God. He's the creator, the sustainer, the author of life, the lawgiver, the judge, the savior. It all starts and ends with him. Right? He is the alpha and the omega, Colossians 1, it says, for, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And that's where I want to go to discover truth. That's who I want to listen to. The only God that exists, right? There is no other God that exists. He is the critical starting point. And that is so important for our topic this morning, right? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? In 1 John 4, 8, it says that God is love. Right? So, so if we are going to understand what it means to love our neighbor, we need to start with the one who is love, the one who defines love. Right? I can't understand how to love my neighbor if I don't understand what love is. And since God defines it, then we must start from him, learn it from him, so we can then live it out correctly. By the way, if we're just atoms randomly floating through space, or are created by chance and explosions and, and perpetuated by the survival of the fittest, well then, love is an idea that is void of any real meaning. There's, love is not anything. It's just a chemical reaction, or it's a thought you have in your head, but there's no substance, no reality to it. And it's something that can then be defined as anybody would like to. Right? But, but if there is a God who made all of this, if there is a God who gave purpose to this world, who is the source of truth, then we can say love is something real because it comes from Him. Right? He defines it. He, he created this world where there is love because we are made in His image. And He is a triune God with love amongst the members of the Godhead. And so then, only then, does love 
becomes something real and something that we can learn about and something that we can do, right? To love one neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. And just an aside, but understanding the truth um, helps us to have gospel opportunities in the world. Um, as much as the world likes to promote this idea of a a world that is ultimately meaningless, you know, it did not come from anything with purpose. It just kind of is here, and and it's it's a it's an evolutionary universe. And at the same time, the, the world believes that love is is real. If you think about all of the the movies Hollywood produces, um, Hollywood is is full of sin. It's a very it's the epitome of a, a debased part of our culture. But so many of the movies they put out involve love and treat it as something that is valuable. It's something that is worthy of pursuit, something that is real. Right? We just came through the Christmas season and, and there's all those, those Christmas Hallmark movies, right? The Christmas in Aspen or A Christmas Kiss or The Christmas Switch. It was, it was, I think that's what it was called. It was a new one we watched this year. I thought it was good. Um, but they're all about love. And at the end, these two people that go through some sort of conflict come together and love each other and the movie ends happily, right? And love is treated as something real, right? This love that can produce friendships or finding the one or good marriage, right? I understand it's a distorted view. These Hallmark movies or Hollywood movies are not the place to understand true love. But they treat it as something beautiful and worthy of pursuit. And that is an opportunity for us to step in and say, in one sense, you're right. Right? As, as you value love and think it's worthy and, and something to be pursued and done well, you're right. Because there is a God who created this world. Right? There is a God who loves, and he has defined it. And let me tell you more about who he is, because the reason you value love is because he made you in his image. Right? And love is re- real. Uh, the world bumps into reality all the time. As much as they try to deny it, they bump into reality all the time. And those are opportunities to preach the gospel. But it's also a reminder that uh, our lo- definition of love should not be derived from the world. Right? There is, e- there is um, evidences of God's image in the world, right? But if we are going to understand love and define it, don't start with the world. Right? Otherwise, you get the conclusion that the world has come to, uh, one of the popular phrases at least, is that love is love. Well, it's, that, that tells me nothing. It's circular reasoning. It's... It's ultimately just pointless and, and, and stupid. You know, if, if, if Renee hears me talking about the, the crane at, at Gulf Street and how I'm trying to get somebody to take it, and she asks me, what is a crane? And I say, well, a crane is, is a crane. Uh, I'm, I'm not wrong, and I've also done nothing to help her. Right? I've, I've basically been an absolutely pointless father at that moment. Right? We have to explain things and define them Otherwise, we can just make them anything we want to be, and that's what the world has done when they say love is love. So instead of that, we start with God, we start with his perfections, because God is love, and God defines love. And in this this command, Jesus starts with the first and most important, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And we covered that in detail last time. But I just want to ask one question here. Why is our command this morning to love your neighbor as yourself, why is it second? It is important that it's second. 
Jesus makes specific note of that. He says the first is to love the Lord your God. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So why is that so important? Well, as we have been discussing, right, the Lord always comes first. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? That is first. That is our chief end. And so if you disorient this, if you flip it around, if you make God second or third or worse, then you, then you are in idolatry. Right? All of that leads to idolatry. That's what it says in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Right? So, so there was this understanding of who God was, but then there was a, a turn from God to something else, and that is idolatry. And that is the root of all sin, right? Displacing God from His proper place and worshiping something else. When we are proud, that's what we are doing. Right? When you are pride, you are worshiping yourself. When you are proud, you're worshiping yourself. Right? It is all idolatry. And so the Lord must come first. This order is also important because it allows us to understand clearly what we ought to do when there seems to be some difficulty or some conflict. Loving God constrains us in ways that enables us to love others in the best way. I went to Pikes Peak in Colorado some years ago, uh, and it's uh, one of these peaks that you can drive up. I think it's about 14,000 feet, so it's, it's pretty impressive once you get up there. And it's, you know, you drive up one of these, these mountain roads that, with the switchbacks and you're, you know, you glance over and you're dropping 5,000 feet down if you go off the road, but they have these guardrails and it's very helpful because I would not want to drive that road without them. Uh, th- those are constraining, right? But I, I never felt constrained in a bad way by those guardrails on the way up or on the way down, right? I was glad they were there. It helped me to do the right thing and to be the safest and have the best time going up to that peak. Uh, another example, right? When, when Larissa and I were dating, we were by the word of God constrained into a, a call of physical purity until the day of our wedding, right? And that is a glorious and good constraint, often one you only realize until after you're married, but it is a worthwhile and good thing. Right? And so, so a constraint is not necessarily a bad thing. And so if we come to an issue of conflict, a popular one today is, is people, uh, maybe even young people, wanting to change their gender right? and saying that they feel differently than they were born. And our society says that love is to give that person what they desire. Right? But the, the Word of God, starting with the Word of God first, constrains us to say that, that no, loving that person is actually to help them understand that the way God created them is the best way for them to continue to live, right? And that a constraint is a good constraint because that is, the, the way God created us is better than the way that we think we ought to be, right? And so this is what it means to start with the Lord. And you can apply it to any other hot button issue of our day. When we start with the Lord, then we can understand what it looks like to love somebody else. Also, when we start with the Lord, only then do we learn true love. Right? A relationship with God 
is necessary in order to know what it means to love others. 1 John 4, 8 says that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 19 says that we love because He first loved us. Right? So the only way we exhibit real love is when we have the Holy Spirit in us changing our sinful, selfish, depraved hearts and giving us a God-like love for others. And so that is why it is Critical to start with him, and Jesus does that. And then he comes into the second command in verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so let's work through this piece by piece. Simply we'll start with the the command part, right? This is a command. You shall do this. Believer, Christian, you shall do this. Unbeliever, somebody who does not love God, you are commanded to do this. Right? You'll be judged by God for not obeying Him. This is a must. To disobey is sin, and it deserves God's wrath. It's not a command for when it's easy or convenient. Right? It is a command for all times and all situations. It applies to those difficult family relationships, irritating work situations, or irritating work people and especially in the church. I praise God that our church exhibits love for one another in many good, beautiful ways. That love can be tested at times. We have a congregational meeting coming up. It's the, the easiest time to get annoyed at people, to get frustrated, especially as the, the meeting goes long and you're tired and hungry. Right? But this command still applies. And praise God that we can still do that. And we do do that in this church. But obviously, we never do it perfectly. And the call is to continue to do it more and more, to abound in these things. So you shall do what? You shall love. Love is a willful devotion to an affection for another that is self-sacrificing for their benefit. Repeat that again if you're a a note taker. This is a a good, succinct definition. We'll work through it. Love is a willful devotion to and affection for another that is self-sacrificing for their benefit. And I said we should start with the Lord so we can work through this understanding and learning love from the Lord. A willful devotion to In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, God says to the people of Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. God's love is a a willful love. It is a a love that is set upon His people. It is not a love that fluctuates. It is something that He and His eternal purposes chooses to do, and He will never choose to not love His people. Right? Right? Love does not wait for an emotion in order to act. It is not controlled or driven by ever-changing emotions, something that we experience frequently. But it does involve emotion. Right? It's a willful devotion to and affection for 
another. And we see that also from the Lord, Hosea 11. I believe we read this last time, but it's a beautiful passage. God in Hosea prophesies to the people their sin and the wickedness and portrays it as as a, a bride that has been unfaithful to her husband. He says to Israel, that's what you are. But in Hosea 11 and verse 8, he says this to Israel, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Right? This is the love of God in action. Right? It is not a dry, emotionless decision, but rather it is a willful decision that also in, includes affection and a love for the people. Our affection will wax and wane. It will come and go. And that's why it can't be the driving force behind our love. Right? But true love is not void of affection. It is also self-sacrificing. This is probably the easiest thing to see from our God. Right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. True love is, some, is a love that acts even when it requires self-sacrifice, even to the point of death. Because that is what our Savior has done, so those are the steps in which we follow. And lastly, it is a, a love that acts and works for the benefit of the one loved. And this is going to highlight how essential it is to start with God. Because how do you define what, what is a benefit to somebody? Well, a very simple way to define it is that if, if they are being drawn closer to God, right? If, if loving them increases holiness and, and sin decreases, then that is to their benefit. This is what God does in salvation with us, right? Romans eight twenty nine. for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, right? We are saved unto the image of Christ. That is what God is doing in us, right? Anything to our benefit is making us more like Christ. Right? So if I am loving someone, if I am trying to figure out the best way to love somebody, then I should be thinking about what can I do that will help them understand the Lord better, right? Hate sin more, love God more, turn from wickedness and turn to God, right? Be made more into the image of Christ. That's what it means to truly love someone. To love someone is to show them Christ, for they will never see anyone better. If somebody is unsaved, to love them is to preach the gospel to them, right? to show them what caring and loving and self-sacrifice means. So, so the Holy Spirit might open their eyes and make them alive. That is what it means to love them. If you want to turn, we can look at together at 1 Corinthians 13. Probably the most famous passage in the Bible about love. It's read at all the weddings. But it, it does give not a definition specifically of love, but rather a list of the practical outworkings of love. When you love somebody, these things will, will occur. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And we should think through our, our daily interactions with others as we hear these, command, these, these words. Our family life, our, our work, time that we spend with friends, uh, opportunities we have to give advice to others. Those situations that arise that irritate us the most on a daily or a weekly basis. And sometimes it's helpful to think about the opposite as we look at our own hearts and look at how faithfully we are following this command. The opposite of love from 1 Corinthians 13 would be to be impatient and mean, full of envy and pride. It's being arrogant and rude. It's insisting on your own way. We all think our way is the best. And that means that all of us except for one are probably wrong. <laughs> but it's being irritable and resentful. Right? Being glad about sin. That is the opposite of love. Getting angry when you're confronted with truth. Do you love those around you? You shall love your neighbor. It was good to have that passage read this morning where Jesus gets that question, right? Who, who is my neighbor? Uh, the, the, the man there seeking to justify himself to make sure that he had loved the right people. And Richard was exactly right, right? Jesus gives this story, this example in order to shock the person he is talking to, to shock the Jews, really to, to show them that their idea of who they should love is way too small, right? It needs to go far beyond what they are thinking. Uh, and Jesus goes to the most extreme example for that time and for that culture, right? Often when the Jews arrived at Samaria, we find that passage where Jesus talks to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. It says that he had to go through Samaria, um, most Jews did not have to go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had a, an appointment with the woman at the well. Um, but most Jews would skirt around Samaria and they would not enter the city because they hated the Samaritans so much. And Jesus could have done that as well, but in love, right, he entered that city and spoke to that woman. And so he uses this example of the good Samaritan as something that would shock and convict the Jews. Right, to, to basically make the point that this command to love your neighbor applies to every person you encounter regardless of how much you dislike or like or hate them. Right? This command applies to every person. It's a shockingly inclusive answer that Jesus gives. And if we think about it, this should make sense. If you think about who Jesus loves... Every single person that Jesus loves was once his enemy. And when they were his enemies, he loved them. 
There is a general love that God has for his creation, but there is a specific, special love that he has for his people, those whom he saves, and every single one of them started off hating him. Right? Ephesians 2, 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. Right? A, a situation we were in that we chose and loved. Right? We were happy in our hatred of God. Whether or not you recognized it in your heart, right? that was your stance as a sinner born into this world. So we can never go to God and claim that there is somebody in our life who is unlovable. This, I can understand in some situations how this would be incredibly difficult. Um, I followed the news story of the, the, the murder that was committed in Moscow, Idaho. Um, it's been all over the news, you know, and they recently arrested a person that they're going to charge. And, but we've seen the parents of those, those, t- those college students on the news. Um, and I, I cannot imagine being in that situation. Imagining my reaction if I was the father. Um, I think I'd have a very hard time not ending the life of the person that killed my child. Um, but this is the importance of starting with God. Because I sent his son to the cross because of my sin. And yet he loves me. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of an interesting phrase, as yourself. So so what does it mean to love yourself? Almost sounds like it's a a sinful thing. You know, we are are called to deny ourselves. But Jesus is not here talking about the, the sin of being selfish and putting ourselves above God, but rather is talking about this, this love that you have for yourself that is natural, that occurs in normal everyday life and not in sinful ways. Right? You do care for yourself. You provide for yourself. You help yourself do things. Right? You, you make decisions to benefit yourself. You go to bed early if you've had a long day because you know you have to get up tomorrow and continue on and do other things. Right? You, you eat when you are hungry. Maybe you are on the January diet that occurs after New Year's. And you're doing that, right? You're denying yourself because you know it's a benefit to yourself. You spend money to keep yourself warm. This is a natural thing. It occurs in many ways, and these are not wrong ways. Sin does affect this. You think of a drug addict who continues to ingest something that will bring him harm, but that person thinks that they want it, thinks that they need it, right? So that in some sense, they're doing something in their, in their mind affected by sin. They're doing something that they think is going to benefit them um, or, or they're doing something to satisfy a desire they have, right? And that desire is based on a lie. Um, and this is the reality. In this world, you're going to, sin has broken everything, right? So we are not going to see everyone loving themselves taking care of themselves as was intended. Right? This is going to be something that is broken. But in general, we can still understand this command. Right? Jesus is not suggesting a, a subjective standard here, that you examine how you love yourself and then go apply that specifically to other people. You know, I, I like watching sports and I like eating the barbecue, so therefore I am going to, whenever I hang out with anybody, we are going to have barbecue and we're going to watch sports. No, that is not what Jesus is suggesting here, right? but rather this generally true statement that in the, in the ways that you do care for yourself, right, 
care for others, right? Provide for others. As it says in Ephesians 5, 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And so in that way, we can understand this command, right? We are to care for others, to help them, to supply their needs, to do good to them. This highlights also, as we finish looking at the specifics of that command, highlights also the need for the gospel. If you want, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, we'll start in verse 2. We'll start in verse 1 just to, to get the continuity. But understand this, that in these last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. If that's not a description of of our culture today, then I don't know what is. But this highlights the need for the gospel because on our own, uh, making our own choices, following our own desires, that is us. That is what we see in the culture that is lost and running from God. We don't love rightly without being brought from death to life. Right? We don't love rightly without God saving our souls and changing our heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Salvation necessarily produces real, true love. It is an evidence of salvation. Love for each other. Love for the world. 1 John 4, 7 says, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Right? So that is the only way that we can obey this command in the way that Christ intends. And so it is a reminder of the gospel. If you do not love others, you have not been born of God. If you are not willfully devoting yourself to others, if there's not an affection for others, especially the church, if you never sacrifice your desires for the good of another, you need the gospel. You need Christ to work on your heart You need to be saved. You need to come to Him in repentance, seeing your need for a Savior, seeing how desperately lost you are. You're a sinner who needs the grace of God. You need to have Him wash you of all your sins by the blood of Christ and cry out to God because God is a God of love. He forgives sinners. He loves to forgive sinners. So as we understand this command more clearly, I want to look at quite a few verses to help us understand what it means to live out a life of love guided by the Word of God. And I have these in categories, and if you want to just write down the reference and go back and look at them later in more detail, you can certainly do that. But if you look through the Bible, the Bible is full of verses and commands and specific examples of how we ought to love others. Um, and so it's, it's very difficult to take a, a command such as love your neighbor as yourself and exhaust everything the Bible has to say. So I've chosen a few, and we'll, we'll work through them, not offering a lot of commentary on them, but 
but just letting the Word of God wash over us and impact us and encourage us and convict us as needed. So first I want to look at love in the family of God. Right? And specifically this church right here. Right? We, we are blessed to love each other well. Let's continue to do so more and more. Right? Because that is what the Bible calls us to. Galatians 6.10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And remember, we're doing good, right? We're, we're bringing each other closer to Christ because that is what is good for us. 1 John 3 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is a command to love with what we have, right? To see the needs in our fellow church members. And this can also be something that we we give to those in the world as well to show them the love of Christ, right? And do it with the things that we have, right? We're not going to take it with us. So let's honor Christ with what we have here in this world. John 13, verses 34 and 35, just after Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? And that great example he gives is one of service. Service even in the things that are hard and difficult and even disgusting as Jesus did there. Romans 14, when you come across a, a disagreement with a fellow believer, how do you love them in the midst of it? Well, it says here in, in verses 13 to 15, do not pass judgment on one another any longer, but decide rather never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Or by what you wear, or by, by what you drink, right? Consider your brothers and sisters and don't cause them to stumble. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 Peter 4.8, we will sin against each other. And it says in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. Right? Not everything is a Matthew 18 issue. Right? Sometimes, and honestly, probably more often than not, we can let love cover a multitude of sins. But there is a place for Matthew 18. And so we'll come to our next category. I call it truth and love. This is the practical outworking of loving God first and then loving others. Right? Loving, loving somebody, somebody to their benefit means to help them come away from sin and towards God. And so it says in Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Right? Thinking about how to encourage each other so that we might love Christ better. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 15, says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Right? There is that, that time where you may need to say something that might be hard to hear. 
But somebody who is loving, remember from 1 Corinthians 13, rejoices with the truth. And so when we hear that truth, even if it's convicting, we need to submit ourselves to the Word of God, rejoice in that truth, and thank the, the brother or the sister who has loved us enough to say something to us. And then Matthew 18. This, this is a passage where the church is loving God first and then loving others. Right? They are loving the purity of the church. And it certainly gets to uh, an extreme that we don't, we pray that we will not often see, but sometimes this is necessary. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay? Almost, almost sounds cruel. Almost sounds mean. But this is loving God first, loving his truth first, right? and then doing what is necessary to help bring somebody out of sin. And if they continue to refuse that, you love the church and protect the church by excommunicating them from the church. And then you continue to pray for them that they might come back as a repentant person and once again come into the love of the church. In your homes, Proverbs 13, 24, as you're raising your children, right? Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Right? Loving discipline, not, not abuse. Loving discipline is good for children. Right? It pulls them right away from sin and helps teach them the gospel and point them to Christ. Right? A, a short category next, love in prayer. If you want to learn a great deal about prayer, look at the prayers in the epistles. Right? In Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, uh, Paul's famous for it. He will often say, I'm praying this for you. And then he will go into to describe his prayer for the people that he's writing to. And it is a glorious way to learn about prayer. In Philippians 1.9, it says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you are praying for your fellow church members, pray like that, right? Pray spiritual good for them, right? It, it is, is okay, certainly, to pray when somebody is hurting physically or, or maybe having a difficult week. But I would say pray this more often than other prayers, right? Because our ultimate good is our spiritual good, right? Our love for Christ, our love for each other abounding more and more so that we are more holy and less sinful. That is better than going through this life healthy or going through this life, having all the things that we wish we did. Right? Let's pray, love each other by praying for each other in this way. And then lastly, loving the world. Because as we learn to love your neighbor as yourself includes the world. It really includes everybody we encounter. One way we can do that, as we read earlier, is to love each other. Right? And then the world will see us and that is a witness to them. Right? If we love one another intensely, the world can be impacted by that. And so let us keep doing that. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute you. Right? It is good to pray for the government. It is good to pray for those that don't like us in our lives, those that make life difficult, those that are frustrating or irritating, or even those that they just hate us. It is good to pray for those people and to exhibit love towards them as we have discussed. The best way to love the world is to share the gospel with them. And this, this may come after a few conversations as you get to know the person, but John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And that is the best thing the world can hear. And so to love them is to share with them the best thing that they could hear. It may also be sharing some difficult truths from the Word of God with the world. Whenever we travel down south, usually for a holiday, we'll go to visit some churches down there, and we have one really good church that we are blessed by and that is, is, I think, very theologically sound. But there's also other churches that some of the our family in Texas goes to that are not theologically sound. Um, and so I've been to quite a few seeker-friendly churches, right? These, these churches where it's very easy, I, I think, for a, an unbeliever to sit in the chair on a Sunday morning and feel very comfortable and welcome and, and feel like they belong. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the vibe that a seeker-friendly church seeks to give. Uh, they they want to draw people in and not do anything that would drive people away you read the Gospels consistently, uh, it is surprising how often Jesus drove people away. <laughs> right? Not because he was mean, not because he didn't want them to repent and believe, but he told them the reality of what it meant to follow him, right? to deny yourself and take up your cross. Right? And so we ought not shy away from telling the world what God says. One example is in Luke 9, starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. This is a perfect person for a a seeker-friendly church. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and and bury my father. The implication being, I'll, I'll be right back. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He's not compromising to make it easy, right? right? God wants people to follow him with all of their hearts, with all of their soul, with all of their mind, with all of their strength, and he will take nothing less. This passage continues, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Again, he's willing to follow. And Jesus said to him, no one, put, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't drive people away. He told them the truth and their sinful hearts refused to bow. And so we ought to do the same, right? Not making it hard on people because we are cruel or mean, right? But telling them the truth, right? Because ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the one who draws people. I don't want to make it easy for people to come to God so that we can fill our church with people that don't know Him. I want to tell them the truth so the Holy Spirit can work and save their souls and then we can have another brother and sister in our congregation. 
Colossians 4 says to, verses 5 and 6, says to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And lastly, 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 24, says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Think about our interactions with the world. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This is the call, brothers and sisters. Right? Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, you will, be, you will keep my commandments. And our Lord says here to us this morning in this passage, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there is no other commandment greater than these. All right, so let's heed the word of God and pray that God continues his good work in us so that we might do this more and more. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is so good to be before your word, to be hearing it, to be impacted by it. And Lord, we rejoice this morning in the gospel for we know this is a impossible command for sinners. God, in, in our natural selves, we do not love as you do. We do not love as we ought to love. And it's fairly easy to look at my own life and see my interactions with, with my church family, with, with my, my family at home, with the world that I see on a daily basis. It's easy to see places where I fall short in loving as I ought to, as you did, Lord Jesus, as you call us to. So, Father, rejoice. We rejoice this morning in the gospel that you have taken away all our sins and loved us even when we were enemies, and you have made us righteous in the righteousness of Christ so that we are not required to keep this command for salvation. We praise you, Lord Jesus. But we also ask that you would grow us in this way, that you would cause us to love more and more as you, Lord Jesus, did on this earth. You loved everyone perfectly. Give us the wisdom to see what that looks like in our everyday lives amongst the people that we, we spend time with. May we understand what it looks like to love them. And may we do it to the glory of your name as we give you all the praise because we know that any good in us is because you are at work in us. Lord, we thank you so much. In the name of Christ, amen.